Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome everyone to episode 64 of True Blue Crime. My name's Sean and with me as always is my co-host Chloe. How are you doing? I'm all right. I saved some information to tell you when we pressed record because I found it out today and it's truly shocking. Did you know that Big W, so Big W for our overseas listeners is a big department store. It's got clothing and white goods and party supplies and weird food that you wouldn't really get at a supermarket but can eat and do you know Big W stands for Big Woolworths? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, no, I, I didn't know that. No, Is that not truly shocking to you? You seem very underwhelmed by that. That I can't believe I've gone my whole life, never know. I've never gone, oh, better jump to Big Woolworths for some, I don't know, undies. <laughs> yeah, I... I mean, I knew it was owned by Woolworths, so I suppose it's that's maybe where my underwhelming uh, <laughs> attitude is coming from. I knew that but, as well, but I never I've, connected the two. No, well, I never, I didn't know it stood for that. That's for sure. It's yeah, it, I can't say it's changed my day. <laughs> but <laughs> look, not the reaction I wanted, but we'll push on. I think it's a valid uh, thing to bring up. I will say um, it's just not mind blowing. <laughs> Uh, it is. I've certainly never referred to it as that, nor have I ever heard anyone refer to it as that. Yeah, so, exactly. Yeah, in fairness to you. But uh, <laughs> uh, we got some uh, Patreon, some big uh, W Patreon shout outs <laughs> this week. Yeah, we do. Welcome and thank you to Charlie, Kylie and Liv from Australia, Sandra Wunch, Shona Scott and Leo Watkins. Thanks very much for the support, everyone. Much appreciated. The case we are discussing today contains extremely graphic descriptions. Some of the content is difficult to hear, so we'd encourage our listeners to exercise self-care when listening to this episode. Today we're sticking around in the New South Wales town of Cowra, where last week we discussed the murders of the Walsh family in 2008. And a shout-out to Emma in our Facebook group who suggested this case earlier this year in May. And while we're still in Cowra, we're going to be winding the clock back some 20 years to 1987, when two young women were brutally murdered as they slept after a day's work and a night out with friends. 
It's a case that remains unsolved to this day and still casts a dark shadow over the otherwise bright community of Cowra. Fourteenth of April, nineteen eighty-seven, approximately three forty p.m. Young Johnny was walking from school to his home in Victor Street when he passed the side gate of a house at Number One Jindalee Circuit. Johnny's attention was drawn when it otherwise wouldn't have been, as he heard some arguing from within the backyard of the property. He looked in to see a man and woman having a verbal altercation. As he looked on. Johnny saw the man hit the woman across the face in anger. He kept walking, thinking it none of his business, but noted as he walked past Prescott Park that a white car was parked outside the home. The question back then remains the same today. Who was the man with the white car? Catherine Holmes and Georgina Watmore were born and bred in Cowra. At this time, in 1987, they were 28 and 24 years old respectively. They had both left the small town in their teenage years to work and explore elsewhere around the country before returning to their hometown. And we talked a bit about Cowra's history in our previous episode, the Indigenous inhabitants, European settlement and the infamous Cowra breakout of over 500 Japanese POWs in 1944. We won't go through all of that again and encourage everyone to go back and listen to last week's episode for the town's background. One additional thing important to today's story though, Chloe, is that around this same time in 1943, the Edgell Cannery was established in Cowra. It's since closed its doors in 2013, having changed hands a couple of times before that, but at the time it provided a huge boost to the small town in terms of profile and employment opportunities. To begin with, the cannery hired around 50 employees, but by the 80s, the business of selling canned tomatoes, beetroots, asparagus and sauerkraut had boomed so much that Edgell needed around 130 permanent staff to run their operations. Additionally, over the summer months, the cannery would bring on another 200 seasonal workers, in addition to the 100 or so casuals they had around town. So it was a bustling place, and it was here that Catherine Holmes met Georgina Watmore, the pair both working on the production line as aforementioned casuals. Cathy lived at number one Jindalee Circuit, which was a small U-shaped street running off Victor Street. She lived there with her two young daughters, Rebecca and Leah, and she'd been separated from her husband, a local abattoir worker named Bruce Holmes, for around three years by this time. Their marriage had effectively ended in 1983, and Bruce no longer resided in the region, but he maintained an amicable friendship with Cathy and had his girls as often as he could. Cathy worked two jobs, one at the Edgell Cannery and another at the local Lachlan Hotel. She was described as being extremely popular in the local area and friendly to all she came across. And indeed, it was this disposition of Cathy's that had her befriending another young local woman named Georgina Watmore. Georgina was four years younger than Cathy and was a bright and bubbly young woman, but she was said to have been through a bit of a rough trot in recent times. 
It was suggested that Kathy had kind of taken Georgina under her wing. Georgina's father had died when she was young, but she'd grown up in a stable family home with her mum and brother David. Like Kathy, she was born and raised in Cowra, but had moved away to explore in her late teens, finishing in Canberra where she worked as a shop assistant before returning home. Georgina was living in a unit in Broham Street at this time, and her and Kathy were good friends. In fact, they'd often plan their shifts at the cannery so Georgina could babysit Kathy's daughters. It was a fine autumn day on the 14th of April 1987, a day like many in Cowra, which could see blistering heat during the day before you had to bust out the jumper and beanie in the rapidly cooling evenings. Catherine and Georgina had finished their shifts at the cannery around 3.30 in the afternoon. In the evening, they had dinner at the townhouse with Cathy's sister. Her daughters were also there, but at some stage, their father Bruce came to pick them up. Where and when this happened, we don't know for sure. What we do know is that Georgina and Cathy's sister went from the townhouse to the Lachlan Hotel and were joined by Cathy a short time after this. So presumably during this time, she facilitated the drop-off with Bruce. After this, without the kids, Cathy was able to let her hair down a bit and have a few drinks with her sister and Georgina. After a couple of hours, Georgina drove Cathy's sister home before returning to the Lachlan Hotel. The night rolled along casually and without incident as the pair socialised with several people before leaving around midnight. They went back to Cathy's house Georgina stopped by her unit briefly to pick up some clothes and a bit of pot to smoke before returning to Cathy's. With them were two workers from the Lachlan, colleagues of Cathy's, she worked there two days per week, and two other friends. So there were six people in total, three women and three men. So it wasn't a raging party going on here, which is important to point out because that would be suggested later on. But this was more of a continuation of the pub session. A few drinks, some music, a chat, maybe a joint and dance around the lounge room, that kind of thing. Kathy packed it in and hit the hay around 1.45am with Georgina following her shortly after around 10 minutes later. Two of their friends left a short time after this, either side of 2 o'clock, while the remaining pair left around 3.20am, an hour and 20 minutes later. The following morning, somewhere around mid-morning, one of Cathy's neighbours, the father of the Mulder family, popped around to invite her over for a cuppa. He heard what he thought to be unusual noises within the home, but got no response from his knock, so returned home. He mentioned it to his wife, Robin, about the visit and the strange noise, and Robin thought this was very odd for the otherwise busy and productive Cathy. Some reports said that the Mulder's son went over after this for a quick sticky beak through the window. But ultimately, it was Robin Mulder who was joined by Kathy's friend Leslie Mann who went over to the house for the first serious look. They'd figured by mid-afternoon that something was definitely amiss because Kathy hadn't shown up for her shift at the cannery that day. At first, they thought the girls were joking, having probably tied one on the night before and they were sleeping it off. Initially, they thought they heard snoring from the bedroom, but they were soon proven very wrong. When they peered in through the window, Robin and Leslie saw two bodies and what appeared to be blood spatter on the curtains. They made their way inside through the unlocked back door, where they discovered Kathy and Georgina in the bedroom. The pair had been brutally attacked, and the sight of what was described as a scene from a horror movie sent both Robin and Leslie into a state of shock. They called the police, who promptly attended alongside an ambulance. 
Kathy was deceased, but Georgina was still alive. Sadly, she wouldn't make it to the local hospital before passing away. This was truly a maniacal attack. One of the women was still in bed under the sheets and the other was on the floor. Kathy had been beaten repeatedly with a heavy instrument, initially thought to be something like an axe or tomahawk, but later suggested to be more likely a blunt object, like a tire iron or a metal pole of some kind. Fifteen times in total, Kathy had been struck. Georgina had been killed by two or three blows to the head, struck five times overall, but she also had lacerations to her mouth. Both women had defensive wounds to their hands. Not only was the bed soaked in blood and the walls of the bedroom spattered in it, a trail of blood had been left to the back door out through the laundry. There were no signs of forced entry. As we said, the back door was unlocked. Neither of the women had been sexually assaulted and nothing had been stolen from the house. This was seemingly a personal frenzied attack, which had occurred in the early morning hours after the gathering from the night before had ended. Kathy and Georgina's families were understandably stunned and devastated by the horrific news. The families were very close and it was immediately unclear as to why this might have occurred. David, Georgina's brother, commented that they weren't wild girls. There was no wild party going on. They'd had a few drinks with friends and that was it. No one in the family knew why this had happened. Bruce Holmes, who was spoken to at length, had the solid alibi of being in Etalong on the central coast, back at home with his daughters when this occurred. This was over four hours away. He too had no idea why this would have occurred. Kathy and Georgina had no enemies, and this was going to be very difficult for their children, losing their mum like this. They were also quite close to Georgina too. The community were reeling after this brutal attack too, with gossip, innuendo and fear sweeping through the small town of approximately 7,000 people at this time. Parents wouldn't let kids out while simultaneously not sleeping a wink themselves, thinking an axe-wielding madman was on the loose. The media reports of the time perpetuated this fear, which at one stage sent neighbour Robin Mulder into hiding when a Sydney-based tabloid printed that she'd seen the killer which wasn't true as far as we know. Georgina and Catherine were remembered fondly by family and friends at their funerals, which were held on the 22nd of April 1987. The police investigation was well underway before the funerals and continued on afterwards and to this day. 35 officers from the New South Wales Police Tactical Response Group were called in to aid local police in searches, while a team of six homicide detectives interviewed more than 1,200 people. Canvases of the neighbourhood were undertaken on the weekend of April 17 and 18, and again later in April and May. Searches of local yards, properties, paddocks and drains yielded no clues, no clothing the perpetrator might have discarded and no murder weapon. There were some partial footprints and fingerprints located at the scene, nothing that matched anything on file. But interestingly, the footprints looked as though they were from either bare or socked feet. They didn't have shoe impressions. This, along with the fact the back door had been snibbed open by the little gas lever in the corner, 
suggested the intruder had somewhat planned this attack and may have had some knowledge of the property. Locations connected with Cathy and Georgina were also thoroughly searched, including the Cowra Abattoir and the Edgel Cannery. I'd imagine the Lachlan Hotel too. Employee lockers were also searched alongside homes and motor vehicles of persons of interest. Clothing was seized for testing, any potential murder weapons were seized, plumbing from laundries was even taken for testing, but nothing was found in connection with the murders. The police diving squad searched the Lachlan River and other waterways around town. A tomahawk was located at Cowra Reservoir, a possible murder weapon which was sent for testing, but nothing came from that. This led to further presumptuous media reports of an axe murderer being on the loose. Land searches continued at the Cowra Tip and other potential dumping grounds. Meanwhile, detectives continued to interview local residents, including every single person who'd attended the Lachlan Hotel the night before the girls were murdered, and importantly, all of the attendees at Cathy's house thereafter. All were cleared of any involvement in the heinous crime, and it was evident to police that no obvious issues had arisen that night. There'd been no fights or altercations with anyone which could have provoked such a reaction. Outside of family and friends and those who'd had involvement with the girls the night before their murders, there was also many other avenues for police to look into. These included not only the influx of workers at Edgel over the past summer, but blow-ins from a local gas pipeline which was undergoing construction nearby. This had brought many itinerant workers to the area who needed to be spoken with. Despite all of these searches, interviews and lines of inquiry, police had no red-hot leads or suspects. That was until a report from a neighbour came along who had seen a man sitting across the road from Catherine's house in the park the night before the murders. Skulking around in a park at this time was not a good place to be considering what had gone down. What made the report of this guy even more intriguing was that he'd been wearing cowboy gear. That description wasn't any more detailed than that. I'd be assuming from that he at least had a decent-sized hat on his head and perhaps a pair of boots. Whatever the case, hopes of this guy's involvement were quickly dashed as he was identified and ruled out as having anything to do with the murders. Other reports from neighbours also came in. They weren't sightings, but noises. A couple of neighbours reported hearing a scream, one piercing, followed by four or five thereafter, around 3.30am. So this was very shortly after the last people had left Cathy's house. Another neighbour, while unable to confirm the time they'd heard the screams, did state they'd heard a car drive off along Jindalee Circuit shortly thereafter. None of the neighbours reported anything at the time, as it apparently wasn't an uncommon occurrence in the area. This was said to be a housing commission area, and while neat for the most part, reportedly didn't have the best reputation locally. Two very interesting things came out around this time in the investigation. Firstly, two friends of Catherine's who were house-sitting for her in the weeks prior to the murders made a police report. They said they heard someone enter the house and walk through to Cathy's bedroom and then leave when they were minding the place. These friends didn't see the intruder but told Cathy about it when she returned and she seemed to know who it was but she didn't divulge to her friends the person's name. This could have been an innocent thing, which is why she didn't mention it. Maybe a friend had come to pick something up they'd left behind. Maybe this friend assumed no one was there, knowing Kathy was away. But it could have also gone the other way and been very suspicious. 
This is hard to know without seeing Cathy's reaction to the friends telling her at the time. But this report would feed into a lot of theories we'll get to shortly. The second interesting thing we'd hear around this time brings us back to the introduction. And that was the report from young Johnny, that's not his real name, who told police he'd seen a man arguing with Catherine in the backyard of her home as he walked home from school. And this was on the day of the murders, around 3.40pm, which would have been just after Cathy had returned home from her shift at Edgel. Young Johnny, who was 15 years old, so not a child, reported that this man had struck Cathy across the face and that he'd seen a white car parked outside the house. The boy's limited initial description prompted police to have him put under hypnosis to try and get a more detailed recollection of something he might have stored away subconsciously. This hypnosis didn't yield much in the way of results, as all Johnny could recall was that the man had brown to dark medium-length hair and was driving a medium-sized white 1970s model four-door sedan. Police put this information out there and requested this man to come forward, but that didn't happen. One has to wonder if this guy young Johnny saw was maybe the same guy who'd walked through Kathy's house some weeks earlier. Was he at the house when she got home from work and she startled him? Did he know her routine and went there at that time to confront her? Did he work with her? And was he waiting for her, watching her? All questions that linger and questions that Cowra residents undoubtedly asked amidst the swirling gossip and theorising at the time. And this was an ongoing problem police had with the investigation, which they'd have in any small town, and that was, you know, during inquiries, information about persons of interest was being leaked back to these same persons by the very people who'd reported them. It was this sort of perpetual cycle of unintentional sabotaging, which really hindered inquiries. Add to that, every local had a theory they wanted to throw in the mix, Georgina had associations with drugs and then the sale of drugs. We know she had some pot, but no evidence surfaced that she was involved in drugs any more than on a small recreational level. Another rumour was that the girls were involved with each other, sleeping in the same bed, and perhaps this had jilted another previous and jealous lover. Again, this theory didn't have a lot of legs and was refuted by those who knew the girls. And crashing in the same bed at night is certainly not an uncommon occurrence for a pair of young single women who'd enjoyed an evening and had a few drinks. Another salacious rumbling was talk that Cathy had been involved in an affair or affairs with some local married men or at least men in relationships and that perhaps the crime had been committed by a jealous female, one of these guys' wives or partners. This theory got some further traction when Dr Godfrey Otel re-examined the crime scene and suggested it was possible a woman had committed the crime, but it was just that, a possibility, not a solid theory by any stretch. The only thing police seemed sure of was that it was someone who knew the girls, or at least knew Kathy, that had committed this crime. It looked like Catherine could have been the target, being her home and having received 15 blows to Georgina's five. But the who and the why remained elusive, and the investigation ground to a halt over the years, even with the help of a Wang computer installed at Cowra Police Station, something quite high-tech at the time, police were unable to escalate anyone from persons of interest to suspect. In total, there were 30 people who couldn't be eliminated from inquiries at this time, and police's only solid belief was that someone local had done this, 
and someone else local knew something about it and was shielding or hiding the perpetrator. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. In the time after Kathy and Georgina's murders, several other murders occurred around the state and prompted speculation that a serial killer might have been on the loose. The murder rate in New South Wales had soared at this time in 1987. There'd been 38 victims across the state by the end of April. Just days after Cowra had been shocked to its core, Wagga Wagga, a city we've spoken about in the Matthew Harris episode, experienced a heinous crime of its own. Teenager Sally Ann Jones was raped and murdered. This had occurred on April 19th, just days after Catherine and Georgina had been killed. Speculation initially was that the crimes could be linked, but down the track, a man named Kenneth Cannon was charged and convicted of this murder, and he didn't have any links to the Cowra case, none that were made public anyway. Only days later again, and the body of Cheryl Ann Birchall was discovered on the 23rd of April in the suburb of Carrington, Newcastle. She'd been stabbed three times and strangled. This crime remains unsolved to this day, however, police believe the offender was most likely known to Cheryl and quite possibly a client of hers. There's no links in modern times to the Cowra murders, but back in the late 80s, it was certainly speculated and added to the community's fear. Just two days later again, and closer to Cowra in the remote rural suburb of Reed's Flat, the bodies of Cowra high school teachers, Robert and Suzanne Kish, were discovered. They were found dead inside their house, which had been burnt to the ground. So within a couple of weeks, Cowra had both of these sets of deaths on their hands, and this probably made matters worse for investigators too. Ultimately, the Kish case was deemed to be a murder-suicide, with Robert alleged to have shot his wife Susan and then shot himself, setting the place alight beforehand. So again, these potentially linked cases at the time appear in hindsight to have no connection with what happened to Catherine and Georgina. A coronial inquest in 1988 established that the police had conducted a thorough investigation and that it wasn't a random attack, but perpetrated by someone who was deeply and emotionally involved with the victims. Since this time, the case has gone cold and been reopened a few times with police hoping that advanced forensic testing and improved criminal profiling can get them one step closer to solving it. But so far, it hasn't. The police still believe it was someone local, at least local at the time, and Catherine and Georgina's families have certainly discussed the names of likely suspects in their minds over the years. Both families remain deeply affected by the loss of their loved ones. John Pollard, Kathy's cousin, commented to the Daily Mail that he believed the suspect still walked free to this day within the town, 
and there wasn't a day that went by where they don't think of the girls. The memory of them will never fade. An initial $50,000 reward for information was increased in 2013 to $200,000. This was when Strike Force Alistair revisited the case, with their main focus being on offender profiling and victimology. In 2014, Catherine and Georgina's family members marked the anniversary of their deaths with a written tribute, which said, Two beautiful angels were taken from us 27 years ago and it changed our lives forever. The house at number one Jindalee Circuit lay unoccupied for several years following the murders. It's since been sold and leased a number of times in 2009, 2012 and 2018. Local police still believe that there are locals in Cowra who know the identity of the person responsible for this crime but are too scared to come forward. If anyone listening to this episode has any information about this case, no matter how big or small it might seem, please contact Crime Stoppers on 1800 333 000. And Chloe, that's a wrap on the horrible 1987 murders of Catherine Holmes and Georgina Watmore. And as always, our thoughts are with the victims and their families. What are your thoughts on this case? Yeah, this case is one of those that make you realise how dangerous the world can be. Well, for me it is. There's something about people getting attacked and killed in their homes that is so scary. As a woman, I feel a little scared and definitely cautious when I'm out at night, especially if I'm by myself in public. But at home, I have my guard down. I'm not expecting anything to happen. I live regionally too, not as regionally as Cowra, but I have a sense of safety living in a small town. I see the same people on walks, at coffee shops, at the supermarket. I know them. I wouldn't be wary of them. It feels like an extra level of violation that someone broke in and did this inside a home. My heart breaks for Georgina and Kathy and their families, obviously. And the frenzied nature of the attack to me screams jealousy or a high-level emotion, as the report said. For someone to lose control like that and show that level of overkill, there was definitely some personal motive. I also wonder if Kathy was covered post-mortem or had the bedsheet over her when she was killed. Covering bodies tends to imply remorse or a personal connection, which backs up some of the speculation around the case. And it's awful to think that John Pollard might be right and that this person may still be walking around. I hope if that is the case that someone in their family does some DNA testing for a family tree and they do get caught That's, I think, my eternal hope now from any time there is an unsolved case ever since the Golden State Killer was caught. Um, But that's pretty much it from me. What are your thoughts on this one, Sean? Yeah, uh, my thoughts, as always, on these unsolved ones are purely speculative. But uh, I do think that this was probably a jilted lover type scenario, and I, I think it was a man and not a woman, just on statistics alone. I do tend to think that this Guy, Little Johnny, or whatever his real name is, uh, spotted in the backyard giving Kathy a whack with the white car out the front. I think he's the likely killer. I also think this guy could have been the one who went through the house only a, a week or two prior. My theory is that Kathy, you know, has had maybe a passing relationship with this bloke, possibly over the summer months, and it's ended probably by her for whatever reason. And he hasn't been able to handle that and has become insanely jealous. And he's done this to Kathy, and Georgina was incredibly unlucky to have been there to witness it. For me, it's a couple of things. When you look at Jindalee Circuit, the house is on the corner of Victor Street. It's opposite this little park. 
Um, it's probably one and a half to two acres in size. It's not massive, not heavily treed. You know, but there's a few sort of medium-sized gums dappled around the fringe. But you know, these were probably a little smaller in in 1987. But on the opposite side of Victor Street from Jindalee, it's all paddocks, open fields. It might not be now, but back then it was. My point being, there was only really a couple of neighbours capable of hearing anything, being numbers three and five Jindalee, probably 55 Victor just behind them. So other than that, you know, across the road and to the left where generally there might be maybe another six houses within earshot, they didn't exist back then. So this also made the house a fairly decent surveillance target, which is something I always look at with these things, Chloe, because of my, my day job. It would have been really easy for a jealous bloke to scope out Kathy's house without drawing too much attention, you know, parking at different spots, wandering down, you know, to the park, moseying around, particularly of a night. And with the timing of things, um, this guy being seen at her house on the day of the murders at 3.40, she knocked off at Edgel at 3.30. The cannery was maybe five minutes away. Little Johnny sees him at 3.40. So this guy either knew her routine or he was sitting there watching and waiting for her to come back home. Also the night of, the last party guests leave at 3.20 apparently, and we have reports from neighbours hearing screams 10 minutes later at 3.30. So again, you have to wonder, was this guy sitting across, you know, in this park under the cover of darkness waiting for everyone to leave? Was this uh, guy one of these influx of 200 summer workers at the Edgell Cannery that year? over the 86-87 Christmas New Year period? Did he strike something up with Kathy and couldn't let it go when she was done? Or maybe he was one of these gas line workers, someone who got to know her through the hotel. And maybe he was a local at some point, maybe not always and not forever since. Maybe he was a temporary local. But whoever he was, I think going by Kathy's reaction to her friends who were house-sitting, I think it was someone who had been giving her some grief Perhaps she was resigned to that and trying to deal with it, but maybe not afraid for her life. And, you know, this guy's confronted her earlier, hit her, she'd given him the old fuck off and he's followed her, stewed in the darkness overnight, watched her have a good old time, become increasingly jealous, like you said, Chloe, and, uh, you know, if I can't have her, no one can type of thing, bang, he's gone in and gone berserk. Um, That's my theory anyway. It's all speculation, as I said. It probably gets us no closer to solving it, but you never know. I hope uh, both Kathy and Jordina's families are in better places now, particularly Kathy's kids, I think, you know, mm. having lost their mum. But uh, that's it from me. That is one hell of a theory. Um, no. <laughs> but, um, let's go to happy thoughts. Um, you can go first because I'm just pulling mine together, which is unusual. We're swapping roles. I'm becoming the, um, oh, no, what's the, <laughs> I can't remember the insult I always give to you. <laughs> anyway, what's your happy thought? <laughs> <laughs> There's too many of them. That's why. <laughs> uh, well, uh, my happy thought is simply Christmas. I think uh, I feel like I'm getting a bit of deja vu, like I might have said this last year or something, <laughs> but uh, I, I was never uh, a big Christmas guy, you know, mm. when I was younger. But I think now, you know, we've got the kids and stuff and it's just much more of a, of a festive thing and mm. I start paying attention to everything that's ginger-flavoured and all that <laughs> sort of stuff. So, um, yeah, I'm looking forward to Christmas. <laughs> that's nice. I think there's nothing like seeing the magic of Christmas through a kid's eyes as well. So you're lucky the girls are at such a good age to see that. Yeah, definitely. Um, 
Oh, and I remember my insult. It's Costanza. You know, I'm becoming the Costanza because I'm struggling to have a happy thought. But <laughs> anyway. <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> Mine is uh, just a TV show, but I've watched, um, there's this Australian comic group called Auntie Donna and they've released this show on Netflix called Auntie Donna's Big Old House of Fun and it's ridiculous and bizarre and nonsensical and so honestly fun. Like it's just, it's six episodes, takes like two hours I'm not recommending that people watch it because if you don't like that type of comedy, it's it might stress you out. But I just it was so good and just made me forget about reality for a couple of hours. And I've been thinking about it all week, and it's just been making me laugh all week. And it's just awesome. Yeah, I've <laughs> seen it. some of their stuff though. They're pretty pretty uh, <laughs> left to center. That auntie auntie Donna stuff. Yeah. Um, I remember seeing one <laughs> clip of their. It's actually ties back to my happy thought. Their Christmas. Have you seen the Christmas pud? Clip? No, no. Yeah. <laughs> I can imagine. It's pretty messed up. But, uh, <laughs> anyone's uh, up for something a bit very left of centre and then uh, <laughs> yeah. look up the Auntie Donna's Christmas pud. Anyway. <laughs> yeah. um, if you want to get in touch with us, you can email us at truebluecrime at gmail. You can join our Facebook group, which is called True Blue Crime Podcast, and you can find us on Instagram by searching True Blue Crime. If you'd like to support the show, you can head over to our Patreon page. The link's in the show notes. For $5 per month, you can support the current free content we make on the main feed and get all of our bonus content as well. We're actually just hitting record on uh, a bit of commentary. We're going to post our reel, our five clips that we entered into the podcast awards. Thank you to everyone who voted for us in the listener's choice, by the way. Um, but we're going to post that that reel we submitted and then we're going to splice some commentary in and, and talk a bit mm-hmm. about some of the things we do and why we do it and, you know, what we try and highlight and stuff like that. So that should be interesting. Yeah, definitely behind the scenes. Yeah, totally. Thanks again for listening, folks, and we'll catch you all next time. Thanks, everyone. Bye. On a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for fifty to eighty percent less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at fifty dollars, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com/style for free shipping and three hundred and sixty-five day returns.